There's a common experience that happens when you grow up. And that is that you realize some of the things you thought as a child aren't exactly the way that you thought that they were. Many times that happens as you take on responsibility yourself. The cliche might go something like this. You know, children think that adults have it all together. They have all the answers. They know things. They're competent. They're running the world based on a very structured, organized plan with results and goals and that mostly things are under control. And then as you get older, you realize that adults are almost nothing like that at all. That even though they do grow in maturity and wisdom and that there is a path of formation, many times we do not feel prepared for or even remotely adequate for the things that we're trying to do. My best friend and I used to talk about this phenomenon as we got older and realized that organizations around town or clubs that we admired or businesses that we saw, we began to marvel at the fact that no matter what importance they had in the world, at the end of the day, our little phrase was, it's just a bunch of guys. And especially as we grow older, many of us feel what has come to be known as imposter syndrome. This idea that you think to yourself, there must be someone better equipped to do what I'm supposed to be doing than me. I felt that most immediately leaving the hospital with our twin boys. Everyone always says you'll never be fully prepared for kids, and that's true, and it was in theory, but nothing prepared me for the moments when nurses give you the most fragile, precious little human beings. And they just say, okay, leave now. Just go. There's not even really a good manual for them. There might be some instructions on what to do if they cry, but you don't have to get a license. You know that right now, human beings are being placed into the hands of just some people. Just, just a mom and a dad who are probably somewhat terrified. There are awkward dads right now trying to walk down staircases holding a big car seat. And they're going to clunk it against the door and then be terrified and wonder if they killed the child. In other words, there is often a sense that you could be more prepared for the thing that you're supposed to be doing. I think that this is a common experience in life. And I bring this up because we should feel that for the disciples who are not very far into following Jesus. We're going to find out later that even years from this moment, they still don't get it. They have been described up to this point. Jesus tells them and calls them sheep. And they may have, because they're following him, finally gotten to the point where they're willing to admit that they are like sheep. They are needy, dumb, slow, dirty, and they will be redeemed by Christ. But I can imagine their shock. I can imagine their shock when Jesus turns to them, having convinced them that they are sheep, and then says, okay, now you go out. Do you think they felt as though they were receiving a newborn child at the hospital? Do you think they looked around and said, do you not have anyone better? Is there, is there some people who you know actually understand who you are and how this whole thing works? Is there anyone not fearful? 
How about we get transformed a little bit? Maybe they would have thought that before they got sent out, they should be turned from sheep into some sort of lion. Maybe they said, we, we, we got to get strength in here. Like, at least turn us into muscular sheep before we go out. Like the impressive kind that go up those mountainsides. In the, could we get that at least? Or Jesus, could you pray for us so that we get some cool horns at least? We're not even bighorn sheep. We're just normal looking dumb sheep. Maybe they were worried about the interactions and they began to like practice their bleeding, hoping it would turn into a roar. But it turns out that Jesus says, if you're following me and have the humility to know that you will not be above your teacher or above your master, then I'm going to send you. And what I want to think about this morning from Matthew chapter 10 is the reality that Jesus intends to carry out his shepherding of the church by sending sheep. So the title over this idea, the thing we want to look at, is that those who would follow Christ are nothing more than sent sheep. And what my guess is is that sometimes you will be motivated and excited and you're going to feel more sent than sheep. You may feel like you got this. But for the rest of us, we might often feel more like sheep than sent ones. And the answer in that tension is not to disregard one or the other. You must not become so confident in your sentness that you forget that you're sheep. And you must not be so, forgive me, sheepish about your inadequacy that you think you are not, therefore, able to be sent. And in order to take a look at what it means to be sent sheep, Jesus gives some instruction. He doesn't leave them totally alone. He gives some instruction. And I'm going to put it under these categories. These are the instructions that Jesus gives to those who are following him. He gives them a place. So he tells them this is going to be the area of ministry, so place. Then he's going to give them some provision, which is a funny word because he tells them, I'm not going to give you a lot of provision, but there are things he provides. So there's place and provision. And then he's going to also care for them by anticipating the reception they will receive. One of the great acts of shepherding that Jesus gives to his disciples is to warn them ahead of time of what's coming. Again, I think much of parenting could be boiled down to helping your children anticipate what will be coming in the world. It is a good parent who stops before they walk into the gas station and says, now I want you to know they might have one of those automatic toilets. And you're going to go in there and it's just going to be loud and crashing with water, but it's going to be okay. And I'll help you. I'll put my hand over your ears. And if you've never had the experience of having to help your child anticipate that, great job. Or be blessed. So Jesus helps not only by giving a place and provision, but he helps them to anticipate the mixed reviews of their message. He helps to figure out their reception. And then finally, in order to encourage them, he's going to reassure them of the providence of God. Reassure them of the love. Reassure them that even though they will feel and be sheep, that it's not a mistake. So let's look at each of those individually. If you had to pick a place to go, 
You might say to yourself, well, let's start with low-hanging fruit. These are sheep after all. First time going out on the, on the mission. And Jesus tells them something interesting. He says, I want you to go nowhere where there are Gentile towns, and certainly not to the Samaritans. Samaritans had a sort of mixed religious background. They were utterly rejected by faithful or orthodox Jews. He said, I don't want you to go there. So don't go north. Don't go east. Don't go south. I want you to stay and start right here in the place that he gives them. He narrows in. He gives them the the gates and the fence around the area of their mission. He says, I want you to start with Jewish communities. And I want you to proclaim who I am amongst the lost sheep of Israel. That's the phrase that he gives them. Now, I want to reflect just for a moment on why this might be. Why does Jesus start here? Well, I think there are a few things to note at the outset. The first is, as though it will be true that much of the nation of Israel will reject Jesus, that he will become a stumbling stone to them, a stumbling block. It is also true that a large contingency of the earliest converts of the church, including nearly every one of the early leaders of the church, were Jewish and had a familiarity with Jewish background. So perhaps they would have been able to enter the synagogues, the temples, and to, with some familiarity, consider how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. More than that, though, I think there are two good reasons to start with this Jewish community. The first is the overall theme that rejection will come, and in order for them to understand and to believe themselves that they are receiving Jesus, they're not going to deny him before men. Remember that heavy saying in verse 33 if you deny me before men, I'll deny you. But if you acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge you. I think the reality is, is that the place where you belong is oftentimes the most difficult place to consistently live for Christ. I do not know why this is the fact, but I found it to be true. It is often easier to be sent across the globe and to have interactions of boldness related to your faith than it is to find a neighbor at a mailbox and have a conversation that you think may turn awkward and therefore introduce some odd dynamics in a relationship because you're just going to have to see them tomorrow and then on Saturday and then your kids will be at the school and they're going to know you're that kind of person. So when Jesus says, if you acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge you. It turns out that one of the most difficult places to consistently acknowledge one's faith is exactly in the places where you are most invested. I'll say it more starkly. You may feel that you have more to lose. So why would Jesus give them such a hard place, a place where most people will reject the stumbling block, where most people it would be difficult where they belong to consistently live for Christ? I think the answer is to humble them and remind them that though they are sent, they are sheep. Their dependence on God will not be gone now that they are ambassadors. 
It's to foster a kind of desperation. I think maybe that's the second good reason that it starts there. I wonder if Jesus sends them to a difficult place so that they'll never forget that a transformation of heart and mind is a miracle. If they had gone to a place where everything went easily, they may be tempted to believe that it was their persuasion, their coercion, it was their charisma that drew people to this message of the kingdom that has come. Maybe it would have been possible for them to believe that if they had just arranged the lighting perfectly, and then when they proclaimed the kingdom, if they'd gotten really animated like this and then whispered at the right time. Or if they'd had the band come up and just hit the synth right when they were getting into it. Or if maybe they had spoken to the perfect amount of felt need in the community that people might say, I'll sign up for that. You see, it is a dangerous thing to believe that the task that you've been given by God depends on you. It's a dangerous thing to confuse the message of salvation with you being able to save. And so I can imagine these sent sheep going out and declaring all that they know, all they see, all they love, the thing that has made them alive. What does it do to them when they receive blank stares back? How does it change their prayers when they encounter the veil over the eyes of their neighbors? Maybe you feel sheepish a lot when you're sharing the gospel with people, and I often do as well. But there have been times when I don't. There's been a couple times where I sort of felt proud of myself in the middle of the whole thing. You ever give yourself a pat on the back in your mind like, oh, that line was good. Got him! You know, like you just feel like you just... There's been a couple times I thought conversion is coming. Ready the waters of the baptismal. And you know what happens? Nothing. It's a desperate thing to care for the soul of someone and to share your heart, to pour out Christ before them and to see them blankly stare back. And I think that going to this place where mostly will be rejection, that the Disciples needed to learn that the miracle of salvation would be just that, a miracle, not under their control, not to be cajoled out of people, not to be coerced, but that they might cast themselves upon the Spirit that is going to guide them and walk them along for the conversion of a soul. Jesus doesn't say exactly. Some of these reasons are kind of pulled from other parts of the New Testament, but I think this might be some of what's happening when Jesus sends them to this place. So right at the outset, notice how they're being humbled at the outset. They probably thought, oh man, we got to start here. And then to humble them further, we should consider provision. I'm going to start with what Jesus does not give them, because maybe you noticed that first. He says, you're going to leave your jobs. You can't fish anymore. You can't collect the taxes anymore. You can't do what you've been doing. You're going to leave and you're going to be on the move constantly. And maybe one temptation for them would have been, okay, just give me like four years. I'm almost vested in the fishing cooperative. I got this 
gold mine in North Africa that's going to start paying out. As soon as I take care of these medical needs, as, long, as soon as I can take care of myself, then I'll be confident to go on mission and be sent. But Jesus gives them a stark contrast. He says, actually, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go right now, and anything that you do have for security to gather, don't bring it. Why? Again, to teach them their dependence. To show them the great reality that where God sends, He will provide. To teach them that there is going to be daily bread. To avoid the temptation to think that the message of the gospel is an add-on to their life that they took care of and are otherwise secure in. I think so many times I fall victim to this. I have described moments of my life of really trusting God as this. I've said things like this. You know, it's really a blessing because in that time, I really just had to rely on God. And if He didn't provide, we were just going to be lost. And then there are moments when I reflect on that and I think, wait, is there any other time than that? You know, like those times when you didn't really have to rely on God and you were taking care of yourself. You see, these temptations and dangers, he's, he's just hedging them in. He's just showing them, no, 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 I know you have some gold pieces. I know you're worried if you're going to be provided for if you follow me, but just leave them home. And then he gives them what I believe is an ongoing principle throughout Scripture, and that is, is that those who receive the good news of the kingdom, because of the generosity that God gives them, they are spurred toward hospitality and therefore give back to keep the ministry of the kingdom going. He says to them, no, it's, don't take money not because you need to be an aesthetic, aesthetic monk or you'll just be more righteous if you're a pauper. He says, I want you to take nothing, take nothing with you. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, want, I want you to take nothing with you so that you can provide an opportunity for hospitality and response with those who receive the gospel. You will be learning dependence on God, and you will be fostering a spirit of community and giving that ought to come with those who receive the gospel. It's not that you're worthless. In fact, he says a laborer is worthy of his wages. But do this in order to depend on me. So they are expected not to accumulate a sense of security based on wealth and then go to the mission of God, but to cast themselves first toward the kingdom of heaven, believing that then all these things will be added unto them. Do you see the flip here? God is not asking you to organize your life and accumulate everything perfectly so that then you can trust him but to show you that his kingdom is the thing to be pursued first and then receive the reciprocal ongoing joy of giving in relationship and community as God provides. They are not expected to, nor should they, play with the danger of, accu of accumulating massive wealth or hoarding material goods so that they might forget that God and His people provide. 
So that's what is not provided to them, but Jesus does care for them. He gives them provision. The first thing that he provides, and it's not a small thing, is the message. So he more or less tells them, go into the synagogues, go to the temples, go knock on doors. And the obvious thing to say is, well, what should we say? Here's a good reminder. We are simply messengers. <clears throat> Sorry. The message is the ministry. You do not need to package, supplement, make more exciting, dumb down, anger up the message that Jesus has given. He provides you the message to give concerning the gospel. And he even says, sometimes it's going to get awkward. Have you ever had the moment where you think to yourself, I know exactly what I'm going to say. You get in front of the person, nothing. You're like a very aged politician in the moment, right? You don't, I don't mean that to be mean, but you know what I mean. So you, you're just stumped. You ever had the essay test? In the morning in the shower, you had it nailed. Like, ah, oh, I just got free-flowing sentences on second kingdom of the Chinese dynasty or whatever it is, right? You get the paper in front of you, nothing. Jesus even encourages and he says, I want you to know that not only is there provision right here in the message, here's what to say, but the spirit of Jesus is going to be walking with you. He calls it the spirit of the Father. We'll give you the words to say in the moment you need to say them. This is a level of trust and provision that creates a pattern of dependence on God in their sentence, in their sentence. Their sentness. So he gives them the message. More than that, and this is, I'm not going to be able to say everything that I would want to say about this, so bear with me. He gives them power to heal. There is a special show of miraculous power given to them to authenticate their message. Now here's what I mean by I can't say everything about this. You could suffice it to say that most Christians down through the ages have summarized this first century, and especially even I'd say the first 50 years of the first century, as a time when God saw fit to graciously give signs that accompanied the message of the gospel. You see Jesus interacting with people, and even by the end of his ministry, he was beginning to critique the constant need for signs of those who were listening. Remember, he keeps saying like, ah, oh, you're always seeking signs. This, he even says, this is a sinful generation, constantly seeking signs. But because God is gracious, he gives them, he provides for these sheep that are sent out, the power to, according to Jesus, to heal, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers, and to cast out demons. And that is Amazing. This is a special show of miraculous power that authenticates the gospel. Now, the reason that I say that most Christians believe this was a unique period is because this has not been the norm for most Christians down through the ages. In fact, you could even make a comparison and say what was going on by the time that Matthew ends in 28. Jesus gives the Great Commission. He repeats nearly everything that he's given disciples up to this point, but he leaves this part out. He says, go into all the world and teach them and help them to walk according to my commands and baptize them in my name 
and then he just ascends into heaven. And do you imagine that there were some of the apostles who were running after him being like, you forgot one part. When I tell someone something hard, I like to be able to zap the demons so they trust me. So I don't know. What I hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. We are not saying that God has stopped acting in this manner. He is powerful over all creations, the spiritual realm, and He works miracles up to this day. It does seem, however, that it is not the normative experience for those who consistently bear witness to Jesus' name in our day and age. And that has been the basic belief of Christians down through the ages. So I can't say everything there is to say about this. I don't know your background. But can we leave it there? I don't see any pitchforks out yet. Nobody's, nobody's too angry. So I'm using words like normative and in this period because I don't want to box myself in. This might be a good conversation. Take someone to lunch or coffee and say, what do you think about that thing the guy said? The point being this, Jesus shepherds the sheep by giving them a place to go to and he provides for them. He provides dependence upon himself. He provides them a message, not only beforehand, but in the moment, a spirit who guides them. And he provides them power, miraculous power to undergird what they're saying. And I think that all this is necessary because he also is going to warn them about the response. I said that he gives them the idea of their reception, how they'll be received There are different categories of being received. How they're, what are the reviews? You know, like the movie comes out or the book comes out and all the reviews start pouring in. So I think there are three categories of reviews. And they're going in descending order of, descending order of uh, pleasantness and ascending order of hostility. So let's just look at them. These are what he's going to do. This is Jesus shepherding well, telling the sheep, hey, you're going to get over there. That fence is electrocuted, just so you know. Here's the good news. First category, some will receive the message. He says, you're going to go into some towns and villages, and you'll find them who are, this is his phrase, they are worthy in it. They're worthy. And he tells them, do not be afraid to receive the good gifts that are given by those who you minister to. Many people are hard to help. We become too proud to receive. And he tells the disciples, when you go out, there will be some who he calls worthy, and I want you to speak a blessing over them and stay with them and enjoy the fruits of relationship in those who receive me. So there's the good news. Some receive. I'm sure they wish that that was the end of the reviews. It's not, though. The reality is, is that mostly there would be negative response. This was Jesus' story. By the time he went to the cross, very few stood beside him. Some who were closest had scattered or outright denied. And Jesus warns them, I think by this idea of verse 24, which is a key point in all of Matthew chapter 10, it's a little bit of a balance point for the whole thing. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. So he warns them and he says, I want you to know that many will reject you. And he gives this imagery. He says, if you walk into a village or into a house, greet them, offer them your peace. Say, I come in peace, bless you. In the name of 
the triune God, and Jesus Christ, His Messiah. But He says that they will reject you. They will not listen. He says, if they do not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. I'm just going to do it. He'll say the haters are going to hate. I'll stop there. So why shake it off? Why? Why shake off dust? Well, it turns out that there's great symbolism in this. There is a common practice by this point in Jewish tradition that Pharisees, scribes, those who were most committed, most righteous, who wanted to be most clean and most set apart, most strictly righteous according to the law, that when they were forced to go somewhere through somewhere as bad as Samaria, or if they had to interact with those Gentiles, that to even walk through may lead to them becoming unclean. And so by the time they walked through, they would turn around and they would take off whatever they were wearing, their sandals or shoes or Crocs or whatever it was, and they would make a show of wiping the very dust off their feet as if to say, I don't want to carry any of your dirty dirtiness with me. It was a public display that they were set apart and more righteous than this gross land that they had to walk through. In a small way, imagine a little boy who wants to run off and play with his buddies on the playground. And the mom says, come here, come here, come here, come here. I need to wipe something off of your face. And she licks, she wipes his face, then she gives him a huge kiss on the cheek. And the little boy goes like this. And then runs to play with his buddies. What is the boy communicating? Mom, I'm embarrassed. I don't want your kiss on me right now. I'm a man. We got to conquer this swing set. (laughs) Well, imagine that except sophisticated, grown human beings imagining themselves to be so above these dirty, gross others that they would make a big show of knocking the dust off. And Jesus says, I want you, because you're my apostles, to do the same thing. Or does he? Remember what I just said? The Jewish people, they would go out into the Gentile areas in Samaria, and that's what they would do. But where did Jesus send his disciples? He says, I want you to go up to the Pharisee's house. And I want you to tell the Pharisee about me. And if he doesn't receive me, then I want you to take back your peace. So funny. There's like take backs in this game of mission. Remember how you offered peace and blessing in the name of God? If he doesn't receive me, I want you to say to them, I'm taking back my peace. No peace for you, only war. And I want you to take back the blessing. No God bless you. You can figure out the other word of that. And then, and then, now do you see the offense starting to bundle here? And then, I want you right in their midst, right in these villages and towns and houses of Israel, to take off your shoes. And I want you to shake off the dust. Do you see how Jesus is having them get straight to the heart of the issue? 
Go to those who believe they are most clean and adamantly insist that if they don't have me, they are unclean. You can see why the next category of reviews gets more hostile. He says, I'm going to send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He calls them wolves. I'm sure they thought, man, couldn't we be something stronger than sheep and they less strong than wolves? We're sending you out as a meal. The offense of the gospel, the offense of my name will lead to hostility to the point where some will persecute you. They will deliver you to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors. So much so, this will get so hostile that there will be brother against brother. There will be children who out of a sense of duty to God will rat out their parents for being those Jesus people and watch them murdered. This is sobering. And Jesus tells them again, this is why you're sent, but you're still sheep. Remember, a disciple is not above his teacher and a servant not above his master. Jesus will be treated in the same way. And so he encourages them, says, endure. I also want to note, he does not offer them more righteousness by seeking out martyrdom. There is an out here. He says, if you're persecuted in a town, then you can flee. He doesn't even use the word leave. He says you can flee from that town. You don't get more heaven points for agitating until you can get more people annoyed at you. Maybe I'll just put this into nowadays terms. God is not more excited about you if you up your righteous trolling. Does this make sense? If you say to another person, yeah, but how many uh, chat forum things have you gotten kicked out of? And then you think that's you know, more righteous. Now, if you have to stand and speak boldly for Christ, then you may need to endure persecution. But he does say there's an out here. You don't have to cast pearls before swine. You can flee. Just flee that town. The only way that you can persist in this kind of hostility is to remember that Jesus is the one who also is treated in like manner. Hebrews chapter 12, which comes right after Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. It's all the people who made it, they endured. How did they do this? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus says to those who are going to face this kind of hostility, I want you to know, rather than seeing it as something has gone wrong, it may be that something is going right. I could say it like this. We cannot expect to partition off and receive from Christ all that is good, all that is life-giving, all that is of the resurrection without also being united to him in his death, in his suffering, in his rejection. What is being taught to sent sheep here is that to be united to Jesus in his suffering may mean that you are closer to nearness of his likeness than it means that God has abandoned you. 
suffering often comes with it the whisper that this is the moment that God does not see. That this is the time when you're failing. That this is the time that you are unworthy. And Jesus reminds them and he says, I want you to be united with me. I want you to identify with me. And sometimes that even means in suffering and persecution. The Apostle Paul says it like this in the third chapter of Philippians chapter 3. Or Philippians, third chapter of the third chapter. Philippians 3, 7 to 11. He says, whatever gain I had, I accounted for loss as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Doesn't this feel like it's just building to glory? It's like at the end of Romans 8, we're more than conquerors. Your heart is soaring. Well, does it continue to soar when he goes on and says this at the end of verse 10, and may share his sufferings? Becoming like him in his death, that by any means, any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Only those who have died can be resurrected. The cross is on the wall behind me, not just because Jesus died, but because you need to go with him there in death. The encouragement here is that your value and your worth is not based on the response of those to whom you minister. Sometimes, you are closer to Jesus when you are at moments of deepest suffering because He has gone before us and suffered as well. He doesn't end here. We're going to continue seeing in Matthew 10 the way that He cares for them. But he does give them assurance. And the assurance that he gives them as they're being sent sheep into the world is that the Father knows them and loves them, that their value is settled. He grabs back at his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He reminds them of these birds that are cared for. And so he tells them a few different times, don't fear, don't fear. You are more valuable than sparrows sold for a penny. He reminds them of the minute attentiveness of our Father. You know, not one bird falls to the ground apart from your Father. That's amazing. Do you know that not one hair of your head is not numbered by a Father who loves you? The reality is this. You are in Christ. Settled, valuable, loved, seen, And no persecution, suffering, doubting, difficulty can separate you from the attentive, affectionate love of a father who has always loved you and always will. He knows you. And this ought to give us assurance as we seek to be faithful to Jesus, to not deny him because he has not denied us. I'm not sure where you are. I I don't know sometimes if you feel more sent and you forget that you're sheep and we may need a little bit of humility. Or maybe if you think, 
I feel very sheepish. I'm not adequate. I am buckling under suffering. I do not have words. And you need to hear Jesus saying, well, then you may just be getting closer to me. Whatever the case, let's not eschew one for the other. Let's not pit them against each other. Let's remember our utter dependence and need. You are sheep and nothing more. But also remember that we've been sent and God does not make mistakes. You are sent into your neighborhoods, into your homes, into your workplace, in relationships in your family. You don't have to be the sheep turned into a lion because Jesus has gone ahead of you. And the vision of Revelation is this. I see a throne and I see a lamb that is ruling and reigning in power. Jesus has gone ahead of us. And when He sends us, He will be there. So let's obey. We'll pray together.